On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Welcome back to Raising Rare and the second part of our discussions with the founders of the Disorder Film Festival and Channel. Today we are going to get to know Daniel DeFabio. Daniel's son Lucas was diagnosed with Menke's disease and lived until about a year ago. Dan, let's start with Lucas's personality. How would you describe him? What did he enjoy? He was the happiest kid I think I've ever seen in my life. You know, I often say for all his troubles and his struggles, probably most of the rest of us would be envious of the amount of time he spent laughing and smiling. Really, I mean, anyone who sees my Facebooks or whatever, Instagrams, you typically don't post the sad pictures. And so it might look like a very biased sampling that he's so happy and smiley all the time. But really, it was probably 80% of the time he was smiling and laughing and happy and it's amazing the little things he took joy in and you could try to figure it out, but you wouldn't always know why. So one example was overhead lines, power lines, telephone lines. If he would pass under them, that would crack him up and he'd try to track them and follow them. And I'm not sure what the association was for him or if he just thought they didn't belong in the world or something, but those little things, somebody sort of falling off his radar, but then coming back in, if it was one of his close people, the family and the friends, that would always send him into peals of laughter and joy that he would just, it was so wonderful for us to feel how much he loved us, how much he appreciated his people. And we even talked about, you know, like many people do, can you do a make-a-wish trip? Can you do some special occasion that will really be special and wonderful for your child and as we thought about it and we did do some of those things he's been to disney world and things like that but really the 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 thing that made the biggest difference for him was to to pull his people in close and keep them close for as long as he could and if that's all he wanted then why were we gonna go through the aggravation of long distance travel or uncomfortable locations or whatever so yeah, I think he he other people saw it too. It wasn't it's somewhat my parental bias for sure, but other people responded to it. Strangers would even see him and so sort of, he'd light up their day, I think. It's incredible how these kids have a very special talent that that we all uh, as grown-ups just don't have. Um just seeing the world the way it is and enjoying every moment of it no matter what happens around them. Yeah, it's very refreshing to hear that. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, when your kid can't communicate verbally, you you can't double check your assumptions. You just go with your gut. It feels like, and Sanath, you probably feel this way with your son too, they're almost clued into a better way of existing. 
they, you know, all the little aphorisms and words of wisdom we've heard, you know, don't sweat the small stuff or focus on the now and, you know, let tomorrow be tomorrow's problem, that kind of thing. I think with maybe some limited cognitive abilities, you are more in that world. That is your, your day-to-day is, is what's right in front of you. And that's, what's important. And it's a, I mean, I don't wish this lifestyle on anyone. If there were zero rare disease families in the world, I'd be all for it. But given that some of us are in this place, I hope a lot of us are taking cues from our kids and learning the lessons we can. Now, obviously, most able-bodied adults can't um, ignore all the small stuff because some of the small stuff is pretty important. The way that his attitude could change your attitude and and his um, untraditional responses to things would give you that perspective again. Like, yeah, it was kind of funny that I smacked my thumb. I'm starting to think I'm a lot like Lucas because I'm, I remember being fascinated as a kid by power lines going by the car window and they'd go up and down and up and down. How is that happening? And I'll laugh when someone, you know, trips over something or I'm watching America's funniest home videos, you know? (laughs) Another sort of mischievous story with him. We heard this from his school. We never saw it happen ourselves, but they told us it happened consistently. He had certain switch adapted toys because he had so little motor control if it was a great big switch he could hit it but if it was a smaller thing he could manipulate it so they hooked up a i think it was an alligator to a big switch so that he could send that alligator running across the floor and he would lie in wait literally because he's on the floor in his playroom at his school and he they'd have to set it up for him so he had some willing accomplices from his pts and his other therapists but He'd wait for another student to come by or another teacher to come by, and he'd launch that alligator at them to try to scare them. And I, you know, for all the difficulty in understanding his internal monologue and his intentions, that to me was, you know, a little uh, mischievous clue as to, you know, how much trouble he might have been if he had more motor capabilities. <laughs> I'm uh, super, super happy to hear. Lucas's mischievous side. I think it's one of those sides that that we all don't get to hear or don't get to even talk about uh, enough. I think as rare disease parents, because we we have a lot more going on in our lives to 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 care about this part as much. So super excited to hear that. I would love to learn more about Menkes disease and uh, and Lucas's story with it. Uh, Daniel, could you tell more about it? Yeah, it comes from a mutated ATP seven A gene which if it were functioning properly would create the mechanism for metabolizing, delivering copper throughout the body. And so it's a copper transport disorder. And so depending on how severe your mutation is, you might have some reduced or greatly reduced or zero function of the ability to transport and deliver copper throughout the system. And we healthy people, we only need very little amounts of copper. And I didn't know any of this, of course, until we got the diagnosis. But lacking that even small amount, then the brain, the muscles, and the hair don't develop correctly. And that's one of the reasons Menke's syndrome is also called kinky hair syndrome, because the hair on these boys, it's almost always boys, as an X-linked disorder, is 
brittle, twisted hair, and it will break away. So Lucas would always have a bald spot where his head would rub a chair or a bed. We kept his hair very short for his later years to sort of disguise that issue. But the other amazing thing about Menkes, which is rare among the rare diseases, is there's a treatment, and it's a pretty good one, but you have to get it in the first 10 days of life. Or I've heard some people in the UK is now stating it as the first 28 days of life. If you could be diagnosed in that time frame and get the treatment, which is just subcutaneous copper histidine injections, it's a pretty commonly available compound. It's not some real expensive drug. Those boys that had the ability to metabolize some copper and were given the treatment, which basically increases the available copper to be absorbed, they very often go on to much closer to typical outcomes, meaning unlike my son, they walk, they talk, they breathe without trachs. My son didn't end up needing a trach, but many boys with Mankies do. They go on to live 20 or 30 years, whereas without the treatment, the prognosis is three to 10 years. And you know we were lucky that Lucas beat those odds by a little bit. He lived to be 11 and a half. So we're grateful for, we never, had the perspective of you know rooting for length of life, but instead we knew quality of life would be a better path for us. But you want both. <laughs> if, as long as you can maintain relatively healthy-ish for these kind of kids' life, that's what we wanted. I can't believe this disease is so difficult and challenging and, and uh been devastating. I, I, I cannot even imagine what your family have been going through in, in the last year after Lucas passed away and, and, and in the pandemic and in the midst of pandemic and everything going on. That, might ha that must have been a very difficult time for your family, I assume. How did you get through it? Yeah, pandemic certainly didn't help. I, I hate to second guess us. I, I don't know that we really made any wrong decisions, but when Lucas a year ago, May, uh, was declining. There were symptoms of distress, and we couldn't quite be sure what they were. But we had been told by his urologist that he had months, not years, and that he told us that in December. So as May rolls around, you think, well, how many months did he mean? You know, you want to think he meant 12, you know. Um, and so we were beginning to think he needed an intervention, a surgery, he needed to go to the hospital. But it was pandemic. It was the height, May of 2020. We live in upstate New York, so it's not exactly as bad as what was happening in New York City at the time. But you could, when we were all scared of this, you could imagine whoever, doctors, patients, anyone coming up from the city and creating a new area of um, you know, infection in the Albany, New York area where we were. Uh, so we were extra reluctant to go to the hospital. And I think a lot of rare parents, even when their kid is closer to their typical baseline, you're reluctant to go to the hospital because every hospital trip is not short. You go in, they say, oh, it'll be, a in it'll be inpatient, it'll be a day, and then you're there for a week. And so we knew that was ahead of us. But again, even as much as we'd been forewarned and, and sort of prepared, you think you're going to go in, you're going to get a procedure, you're going to come out and you're going to be better for it. 
are you going to have another few months after this, you know? And uh, obviously they don't let you out of the hospital if they don't think you're okay. But we were in for six days and the poor kid had four surgeries in that time and their kidney surgeries and their kidney bypasses and kidney draining and all these different things. And the urologist had a great, he's been a, he's been with our, a part of our team for almost since the beginning. And he had a good relationship with us and a great way of talking to us. And he turned to me, we're about the same age. And he turned to me and said, you or I would not have survived that. And at the time I took that to me. And I think he did mean it this way. Kudos to Lucas for being so amazingly strong and he can bounce back from these things and who would suspect it with all his limitations that he, he can endure this and overcome this. And, but then in hindsight, and really maybe just in recent months, I've come to hear those words differently. And maybe it was his very kind, gentle way of saying this was a lot and Lucas might not make it. And, you know, as I said, we wouldn't have been let out of the hospital if, if nobody thought he was okay. And I have always been in the position of um, almost arguing for our release. You know, in these rare circumstances, doctors are torn between deferring to your expertise as the parent and, and sticking to what they know are best practices. And certain gray areas of baseline, you know, come to bear. And they'll say, well, if you think, you know, if, if this looks normal to you, if this is healthy for you. And so on this visit, um, the, the attending came around and said, we think he's good to go home, but if you want him to stay long, and I just cut him off like, nope. <laughs> and, and then I heard him move down to the next patient or whatever. And he said, and I hear the dad just say, nope. <laughs> so we were going home and we got home. And the great part of this, I mean, it's a tragic story, of course, but the great part of the story is because it was COVID, we didn't do our normal routine where my wife would come in for a day and I'd go home and then I'd go into the hospital for a day and she'd come home. And that's just the way we coped with this. And we could sort of maintain our normal schedules a little better that way. But with the risk of being in a hospital during COVID, I just said, you know what, you stay home the whole time. I'll stay in the hospital the whole time. So at first I thought that was me being generous or unselfish or something. But in hindsight, I can look at that too, as I deprived her of some of his last days. I got those days and she didn't. But when he came home, it was a Thursday night and he was not his smiley self because he'd been through a lot and we got into our normal routine which is an evening on the couch and the whole family gathered together on a couch and his little brother hooked up a tube to his g-tube and vented him and this was somewhat new because alex was only nine at the time that alex would be involved in his care and in very small ways lucas knew enough that this is not the way it goes. This is not his job. Who's he? He's the little guy. Why is he doing that? And Lucas cracked up and smiled. And so we had that moment that it was so important to us. And we didn't know at the time because the next morning he died, but it was our last moment, our last moment with a, as a family with Lucas. And we got the smile and the laugh that we always think of as his true personality. And I think the fact that it came from his little brother was all the better. It's very sweet, very sweet um, way to look at that situation. And 
and for the little brother um, to to get to to help like that, you know, it was probably his last chance to do that, um, and he had just, you know, it was his first time doing it, so or near his first time. Yeah, it's it's terrible to ever think this is the way you would want it to go, but there's a few I don't know checklist items better at home than in the hospital better that we're all happy together in our final moments than sad together in our final moments maybe better that he goes in his sleep which isn't exactly how it happened he did wake up Friday morning but as soon as we woke him up and started his morning routine he went into a fast fade and then again you can say and maybe I'm just being too optimistic here but you can say better a fast fade than a slow fade and so by the time paramedics came there was there was no question of anything could be done you know and again did we i mean i hope i don't sound like a monster but did we want to go another round of hospital and trying to save a life that maybe couldn't be saved and i i can't really answer that but i'm glad i didn't have to answer that question no i you you, you sound perfectly normal to me I completely understand uh, the point of view that you're coming from. We, Raghav was in the hospital for breathing difficulties over the Memorial Day weekend. I, I did exactly everything you said. Uh, the doctors attending came, came to us and asked, well, he looks okay, do you want to go home? Or do you want to stay more? And I said, no, I want to go home. And I, I said that on day one, and I said that on day four, but he ended up going home on day seven. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's heart wrenching. At the same time, very heartwarming to hear that Lucas was home, happy with the family, with his usual smile. I think that's the that's that's the one thing that that keeps us going all the time is is that these kids are just happy and smiling despite everything going on around them. Right, I'm I'm really glad that, that happened. And another complication of COVID, which I'm sure you can imagine, you know, I think so many of us felt time flowed differently. We saw almost very few people, let's say. And then you have this cultural event that is the loss of a loved one where we have our rituals and they are to come together. And we couldn't come together. And we didn't have a funeral. Uh, we, we may this fall have some kind of ceremony, uh, celebration of life or something, but that's how long it's taken. We haven't felt that we could invite people to gather. And without that, it, it was that sort of stretched out. I mean, it was already stretched out because we were pre-grieving for years. We were probably pre-grieving from diagnosis day. And then the actual death comes and you don't get the typical closure of a society's, you know, sanctioned funeral event, you know, that's been odd too and then on this sort of selfish practical level for years we didn't travel other than by car with lucas because it was just too difficult and so that meant shorter trips or less trips and things so you know one sort of silver lining we might have thought like in life after lucas was oh we'll travel but covid said no you won't be traveling either so you know a, a lot of bad things made worse by COVID, I guess. Uh, it's important to underscore the impact of COVID on rare disease families, and especially in, in really tough situations like these, where, where that, that family support is most needed. Uh, just COVID deprived us 
of all of those. I can only imagine how, how your wife felt like when she was not in the hospital for those last days, because I can imagine my wife being incredibly unhappy and sad about it. And that, again, is because of COVID. But I'm glad we are over those humps and, and life is getting back to normal. I'm, I'm really glad about it. Yeah, and I could actually, you know, maybe it's being generous, but I could give COVID some credit for maybe a, a good outcome if any of us were told you're going to lose a loved one in a certain short time period. What would you do differently? You would spend more time with that person. And because of COVID leading up to Lucas's death, we had been all stuck in the same house and and you could see the difference in Lucas. He might not know his schedule exactly, but he he sort of had a sense for his routines and he'd look at us and laugh like you're not usually here this much you're not usually around me this much and you know we still tried to do our jobs every day and things but we were all together in the house and he knew the difference and got more time with us and appreciated that so i suppose if i were to you know tally the pluses and minuses of covid that might be the one plus that we got a little more family time leading into his final days you mentioned the term pre-grieving can you talk about that a little bit and maybe give some advice to to parents like sonneth who who that's a reality i i think it's such an important lesson for those of us that face a rare disease diagnosis i didn't know it myself for a few years into the saga most of us think you can only grieve a death that's our association grief with death and i've come to learn that kubler ross and and the people that wrote the five stages of grieving really define it as any shock event can cause grief and certainly a diagnosis of a life-limiting disease is a shock event to you the parents or to you the patient if it's you know if you are you know able to communicate for yourself and and express your own feelings on the issue you're going through a lot of terrible emotions and stresses and this as with many things putting a name on it can really help you know not knowing why you're in this whirlwind of different sort of despair and other feelings that's made better if you know it's let's say normal or to be expected and it's not predictable because the five stages of grief don't happen in order, but to know that you're allowed and other people do it, it's, it's a big help. It's, it's, uh, it just lets you put your newly discovered and less than ideal life into a context that makes a little bit more sense that these things are going to happen they're probably going to happen repeatedly in no particular order and i think at least for me i think for a lot of people more knowledge is better more understanding is better and you can cope a little better because of that yeah, i think we can be hard on ourselves when we react normally until we know it's normal you know why why am i why am i feeling down why can't i get work done why can't i concentrate when it's to be expected and and as you say but the pattern of it is unexpected everybody grieves differently and the situation causes different grief so it's 
I think it's important for people just to recognize it and say, okay, it's a grief thing or a reaction, a human reaction, and, and it's okay. I'm okay with, with reacting that way. I'll get through it. This whole situation, having a son who's diagnosed and then, then having this short life that you said, you know, you weren't looking for quantity, you were looking for quality. How did you respond to all this? And, and what in your life prepared you for something like this? I, I probably nothing in my life could prepare me for this. You know, previous to this, my tragedies were few. You know, a a divorce, uh, a miscarriage, of course, not my own, my wife's, the impact being much greater on her, you know, didn't get into the college of my choice. I mean, these are really small problems for a person of some, maybe not huge privilege, but some privilege. And then this comes and, and this is, I, I've said after maybe, I don't know if it took a week or after the biggest wave of disbelief sort of settled, I was left with a feeling of game over. And that meant a few different things to me. Not game over, give up, but that other game that we all play of rat race or competition or do I have a good job versus your good job or do I have a good car versus your good car or house or whatever we do that sort of creates our value. I knew none of that mattered to me because if you could take one thing from me that would destroy me or bring me as low as possible, it would be my first and only child at that point. And that's kind of what had happened, even though it was not then and there, it was out on the horizon. It, it felt like I have been dealt the worst loss possible. And in some ways that was empowering, even at, while it was devastating, because I thought, what else could happen that would matter? You, nothing will matter more than this. And I also thought of it as game over, as in, now what? You know, now we got to start something else. And it's probably not a coincidence. It took a long time, uh, but it changed, of course, my life, my mental attitude, that kind of my life, but it changed my career. I turned rare advocacy into at first a sideline kind of volunteerism thing. And, and then just this past year, it's now my full-time job at Global Genes. It was definitely a game changer. It, it, uh, that moment of feeling game over also felt there's, you know, other people say there's no way out except through. I felt if this has to be endured. This is now my life, and it's a different life. And that was that was the big thing to reset and redefine things. A lot of us take for granted, you know, that you'll have a a child that will go on to be an adult, that will graduate, that will get married, that will have a career of their own and a life similar to yours, and all those things kind of. If, if they, if I say they had to be given up on, that's so defeatist, but they couldn't be taken for granted. They, they were not 
insured. And with benefit of perspective, for none of us are they insured. A lot of us are just getting lucky to get to that point. We're not getting hit by a bus, you know, but it is so much of our expectation. You know, we, it's a, it's a weird thing how, I don't know how optimistic we humans are that we, we don't expect bad things to happen. And for me, there was some comfort in the genetic randomness. When we found out my wife was not a carrier, two thirds of Menke's cases could be inherited, but one third are de novo mutations and Lucas's was a spontaneous mutation. So that was science. That was cosmic randomness. That was, you know, one in 10 people get a rare disease. Some people get rare diseases. We're some people. It happened to us. I don't know why that was a little comforting. You know, I guess it just saved me from all the asking why and trying to find a reason. There wasn't a reason. Randomness was the reason. It's literally called a mutation. It's not supposed to happen. But the the why question is is really a challenging one to battle. When we didn't have our diagnosis for about a year, we kept asking the why question, like why is why is our son like this? Uh, what could have gone wrong? Did something happen during pregnancy? Did were we careless? Uh, did we get exposed to Ebola uh, or Zika or whatnot? Right and when we got the diagnosis of the mutation, you're right. It actually gave uh, a very, it, it was comforting. We do have a, we do know what the problem is and it's nature. And that's just how the way it works. There's nothing any of us can do anything about it by pointing fingers or asking any more why. And it's, uh, it's a point of getting back to action. So I'm really glad that, 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 you also went through the same process and you get you came at the same conclusion and it tells me that this is maybe just how everybody kind of goes through this process of of coping with the diagnosis but it's very interesting that you ended up changing your career most recently into into mainstream advocacy could you talk a little bit about that uh, i know we'll be talking a lot more in the future but could you talk could you give us a teaser i think like a lot of people, you might stumble from, there's so many different types of advocacy. First, you have to advocate for your child's you know, immediate medical needs or their, their school needs, or, but then you probably want to raise awareness and maybe you're the type that wants to raise funds and all those things. And for me, my first step was to just write a story, write a blog post about what it was like. And it was actually the one, it was titled something like, how having a rare disease child changed all my expectations. That was sort of tipping my toe into the waters of public, uh, being public. And it met with a decent reaction. And I needed to hear that back because I wasn't sure if I was just venting or was I actually providing anything of value to others. And the comments came back and it reassured me that some people needed to hear this kind of story. So I took that as a cue that I should make a film about Lucas. So I made the documentary, Menke's Disease, Finding Help and Hope. And again, so that it wouldn't seem like this is just me and my family, I included a few, two other families. And so I could hope to show a diversity of within this Menke's community, how it's, it's not just one story, it's what's in common for all the stories. And each of those steps sort of led to 
something bigger. And having one film led to wondering where to show that film. And that led to going to a Global Genes conference and meeting Bo Bigelow and talking with Bo about what films we should, as parents and advocates, make and where we should show those films. And wasn't there a better place? And why isn't there a better option? And then since there wasn't a better option, we got around to talking about, let's make our own. And we made our own film festival in Boston in 2017. And then two years later in San Francisco, and hopefully soon we'll do another one. So yeah, it, and then of course it comes back around full circle. Global Genes was sort of where a lot of this began for me. And certainly they taught me what was possible for advocacy. And I was amazed by how much bigger and it seemed to me better and, and more thorough other advocates were doing their thing. And I, was, I felt I was just doing this little tiny piece, but I think we all play to our strengths and uh, I'm not gonna, on the medical science advisory board for anybody i'm gonna be the guy that knows how to shout loudly <laughs> and so uh i i do more of the stories and the awareness uh on that kind of level and uh then after lucas's death i i was in a new position i had more available time. I could commit more to a career or a job where I had to, I still worked while Lucas was alive, but I had to manage that and be available for his care too. And I didn't have that constraints on my schedule anymore. So if I could do a different job, what was the different job I wanted to do? And I had learned from our efforts with the film festival and the channel, how important this work was to me. So I thought, why, why don't I do that? Why doesn't that become my next gainful employment. And luckily, uh, Global Genes agreed and they took me in. That's great. So what are you exactly doing at Global Gene? I'm called the Associate Director for Community Engagement. And what the community in this case means is primarily we're creating an online community uh, because, you know, Global Genes is mostly probably as an events organization. Well, COVID changed that up a bit and the events went virtual. You guys participated with us last fall. Even when COVID is not a factor and we go back to all events all the time in person, face-to-face, -face, there are gaps in the schedule between one Global Genes event and the next. So having this online community, a bit like a lot of rare disease groups will use a closed Facebook group specific to their disease. But because Global Genes is the umbrella organization, we're not specific to any one disease. So we're aiming to be the gathering point for all conversations across diseases in that sort of great big tent. But then we also offer specific sub-communities that are very focused, like um, medical students concerned with rare disease, or people that want to talk about the challenges of equity, diversity, and inclusion in rare disease, or people that are really looking at getting to their genetic diagnosis and how to approach testing and what to do after testing. So those would be some smaller subcategories that we're offering too. But mostly this is, it's what used to be the lobby experience at the conferences. It's, it's the informal chatter that I know is so important and leads to people having these unintended but so welcome discoveries like, oh, you've been working on that? That's what I need to know about. Tell me. You know, those are the ways we really help each other 
sort of leapfrog anything we could have done on our own. Wow. So congratulations on the new, new role, and I'm excited to see where you go with it. Are there any final things you'd like to say about your story? I tend to go back to those stages of grief, and it's worth mentioning that Kubler-Ross's um, co-writer, his name Kessler, I think, added a sixth stage recently, somewhat recently, last five years maybe. And the sixth stage is purpose or meaning. And I feel really grateful that I think I've gotten myself to that place because of Lucas. And I might have gotten there some other way, maybe earlier, maybe later. I don't know. But this, uh, you know, I'm not really one to say something happens for a reason or this tragedy made me a better person or something like that. But I am grateful for the feeling of meaning and purpose. And, you know, I used to sell soup. You know, I used to make commercials. There's nothing wrong with that. I liked it. But this is better. This is a lot better. So next time on Raising Rare, we are going to sit down with Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio to hear how they join forces to create a new force in the rare disease universe. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. You can continue to follow Raga's story next time on Raising Rare.